Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Thousands of families displaced by Hurricane Maria have come north from Puerto Rico to New England. And for many, their stay isn't meant to be temporary, but the high cost of housing can get in the way. We have in the state of Massachusetts, thousands of individuals that are looking for housing that is almost non-existent. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankowski. We'll get the latest on recovery from Hurricane Maria. We'll also dig into some big economic questions surrounding New Hampshire, long known for its low tax burdens. It's trying to be a place where young people stay and thrive. If you have someone from New York that's just here for a wedding or whatever, exploring, they're totally caught off guard that this would be here and everyone says, oh, you know, this would do so well if it was in X city, whatever city. But I think that it's doing so well because it's here. And what does a New England landscape sound like? Well, listen in to a musician whose job is crafting a soundtrack for our ever-changing region. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region, with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This is Next. I'm John Dankosky. There is a strong connection between New England and Puerto Rico. Hundreds of thousands of Puerto Ricans call our region home, but also have family and business back on the island. There's historically been a regular flow of people back and forth. But since Hurricane Maria hit last fall, thousands of Puerto Ricans were displaced from their homes and came north. Many of them plan to stay. In a moment, we'll hear about the difficulties some of them are having finding housing. But first, let's turn to Connecticut Public Radio's Ryan Karen King. He's been reporting on the aftermath of the hurricane on the island and also in Connecticut, including the stories of thousands of people who've been living in hotels and motels since October. For many of them, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, has paid the bill for them to stay in these hotels. But now FEMA is notifying 200 families that they'll no longer be paying for their hotel stay. Several of those families have been in hotels in Massachusetts and Connecticut. Ryan, welcome back to Next. Thanks for having me, John. So, so why is FEMA taking away housing for people who are still recovering from the hurricane? So at first, back when the hurricane hit, um, about a month later, FEMA issued what's called TSA, Transitional Sheltering Assistance, um, and they cast a big net. So a lot of people could apply for this, and a lot of people were approved, thousands and thousands of families. Um, but now that we're several months after the hurricane, they're starting to shrink the eligibility. Um, and they say that people to apply um, for eligibility for this housing program to live in hotels have to be able to prove that they have an occupancy and that occupancy is damaged and they have no place else to go. Um, and they also say, uh, when I talk to FEMA, that they say they want to be responsible with taxpayer money. They want to make sure that this aid money is going to the right people. Um, but unfortunately, for a lot of the families that I've been covering, that means they have to live in uncertainty now. And a lot of them haven't known day to day if they're going to have a place to stay the next morning. Um, now FEMA is uh, calling about 200 families across the nation to say your hotel assistance is up next week. You have a week to find a place. 
I met with Brian Rivera. He's living at the Red Roof Inn Hotel in Hartford, one of the hotels where many of these Puerto Rican families have been living with FEMA assistance. And he was just finishing breakfast with his two-year-old son. He's living there with his son, uh, his other one-year-old son, and his wife in, a, in one hotel room. He decided to go up to the front desk to find out if he had an extension because he didn't know yet. Okay, so it is showing that you are extended until March 20th. I am? Today. That's what it's showing me. Okay. All right. Got the extension. That's good. How does it feel? It feels good because I was worried about it. Well, what I was going to do with my kids if I didn't find something. But now I feel better. I hope so I can find something really fast. I'm moving every day to see what I can find. So it's just like an open door right now for me. So, well, he's, he's really living day to day here, Ryan. Now, back in January, you had reported that FEMA reversed its decision to extend housing assistance to several families who were living in Connecticut. What exactly happened there? So FEMA has been restricting people's eligibility for housing assistance in two waves, the, the second wave. Around then, FEMA had told about 600 families that they had to move out. Um, now, the state of Connecticut had been advocating FEMA to give these people an extension. A lot of them don't have family in the area. A lot of them don't have alternative means of housing. And a lot of them have been appealing FEMA's uh, inspections findings that they do have. These inspections have showed that they have safe places to stay. And these families, a lot of them say, no, we don't. We don't have electricity or power yet. Sometimes they've had so much miscommunication with FEMA that they weren't able to set up an inspection um, and lost their housing because of that. So the state of Connecticut stepped in and said, you know, we want to make sure that none of these people go homeless. All the shelters in Hartford are full. Um, and uh, advocated for these families to get an extension. FEMA sent the state of Connecticut uh, officials an email saying, yes, you got the extension. But uh, a few days later, this is in January, they revoked that extension saying it was an internal error and that shouldn't have been granted. And that gave those families only a few hours to move out. Now, they didn't have to. after a lot of commotion and a lot of politicians pushing back, FEMA decided to give them a few days uh, to move out. Um, and then the state of Connecticut stepped in and paid for those families to live until February 1st. Now, what happened to some of those families? Some of them um, we hear moved back to Puerto Rico, but quite a few of them have found apartments in Hartford and have been working to find jobs um, and make that work and start a new life here in the city. I met with Wanda Ortiz. She uh, is living with her two grandchildren and her daughter. Her daughter recently got a job as a nurse. Um, And they said back on February 1st, uh, they were able to find an apartment just in the nick of time. So we'll hear a little bit of tape from her. Nosotros estamos alegres porque el mismo día que el hotel nos dice que está cancelado todo, So here she's saying that she's happy because the same day that they were told to leave the hotel was the same day they got the keys to their new apartment. And honestly, most people that I've talked to, actually all of the people that I've talked to, don't want to be in this hotel in the long term. It's it's not really a fun place to live um, for months on end. In In small rooms, some people are sharing one bed. They don't have kitchens. They don't have um, uh, a flu was actually going around the time when I visited, so a lot of people were sick. Um, at really close quarters, living uh, can be difficult. Um, and when I talked to Wanda Ortiz, who had recently just moved out of the hotel to her own, own department, she said a lot of the people at the hotel were getting really depressed. Sí, en, en esa estamos, porque 
eh, me comuniqué con Carmen y en eso estamos para ayudar a la familia porque como yo soy consejera yo nosotros, entre Carmen y yo tuvimos que con, aconsejar a muchas familias ahí por la depresión que tenían y hubo gente que se intentó se cortó hasta acá una y una se quería tirar por la ventana So you can hear one of her grandkids in the background uh, having fun with the microphone. <laughs> um, but she was saying that she knows how to deal with depression herself and how to deal with the, the stress of the situation and the frustration. Um, she knows how to help her family and, and help herself, um, but she was still worried about the people still living at the hotel in Hartford. She said she lot of, saw a lot of depressed people, a lot of sad people who weren't coping with the situation, um, so she's really worried about them. Ryan Karen King has been covering the connections between New England and Puerto Rico in the aftermath of Hurricane Maria for part of a project as part of a project called The Island Next Door. We've got links on our website nextnewengland.org to his reporting and some of the videos that he's produced as well. Ryan, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thanks, John. Let's go about an hour north of Hartford now to Holyoke, Massachusetts, another city with a big Puerto Rican population. New England Public Radio's Jill Kaufman has the story of a family looking to get out of the hotel where they've been living into a permanent home. But as she found out, the house hunting can be difficult. When Puerto Ricans arrive in Holyoke, Massachusetts, many say they feel like they never left the island, cold weather aside. It's a city densely populated with people who came from Puerto Rico decades ago and as recently as last fall. Amarillis de Leon is among them. On this day, she and her mother are waiting in a hotel lobby for a ride to look at an apartment they heard about. They've been living at this hotel since before Christmas, and they're not returning to the island. De Leon's two daughters live with them. Her oldest is a senior at Holyoke High School. De Leon says they've already put a prom dress on layaway. I'm going to do something to the dress different how, how it, it is. De Leon was studying fashion design in Puerto Rico before the hurricane hit. She has her sewing machine with her. She's among the hundreds of evacuees who, for now, call hotels along Interstate 91 home. FEMA is paying for the lodging through the Transitional Shelter Assistance Program until February 14th. For some, the deadline could be extended to mid-March. And for the past few weeks, De Leon has been looking for an apartment and a job at the same time. I have application to stop and shop and family dollar. That's De Leon's mother, Myra Soto, saying it like it is. You need work to pay the rent. Families want to find an apartment, want to find work. They need to find work before they're able to get a landlord to seriously look at their application. So we right now have a, what I call a crisis. Betty Medina Lichtenstein is the director of Enlace de Familia in Holyoke. It's a community resource center, and it became one of several designated welcome centers in the state after Hurricane Maria. She says more than 1,800 people have come through their doors since the storm. Finding an affordable place to live was hard even before the hurricane hit. We have in the state of Massachusetts thousands of individuals that are looking for housing that is almost non-existent. From 12 to 2, every weekday here at Enlace, there's an orientation for newly arrived Puerto Ricans. Months after the storm, the seats in the room are often filled. Lichtenstein is giving an overview of how FEMA funding works and how to manage life while you're living in Holyoke. I'm a Kermit, so the Holyoke Community College. Around the room are tables staffed with people from job centers, community colleges, the public schools, health care centers, and housing agencies. 
According to FEMA, as of this week, the federal agency has received more than 1,300 applications from families wanting to stay permanently in Massachusetts. That's about 3,000 people. For years, a bad economy has caused Puerto Ricans to leave the island. In the decade before the hurricane, 10% of the population left. That's according to the Center for Puerto Rican Studies at Hunter College. After the hurricane, the center released a report that says up to 200,000 Puerto Ricans could move to the mainland U.S. in the next couple of years. Massachusetts could see as many as 14,000. Connecticut would not be far behind. Everyone will need a place to live. Many will be starting over again looking for housing in a tight market, says Lauren Voyer with Wayfinders, an affordable housing agency. We've seen rents going up just over time, you know, since the um, economy has begun to improve. And the ability for families to afford the two-bedroom apartments, for example, even, really requires about $50,000 in an annual pay. The cost of living in New England is higher than in other parts of the country, like Florida, where many Puerto Ricans also went after the hurricane. In Springfield, Voyer says a few hundred affordable housing units were wiped off the market in 2011 after a tornado hit the area. And since MGM started building a resort casino, the rents are going up. For now, some Puerto Ricans who left the island are staying with friends and family. But for Amarillas de Leon, that's not possible. Her family could qualify for emergency shelter, but what they really want is a place to call their own. She and her mother are on the street near the apartment they saw in Springfield. They're not going to take it, they say. It's not exactly clear what happened and if the landlord was even willing to rent to them. The cost? Eleven hundred a month, first and last month up front. The man who gave them a lift here said he couldn't bring them back to the hotel, so I offered. And we head back to Holyoke, and along the way, Amarillis de Leon and her mother, Myra Soto, point out several apartments they've looked at already. At this point, even with so much uncertainty, they are determined to stay. That's Joe Kaufman reporting. Coming up, some New Englanders shake their heads at New Hampshire's relatively spare social safety net. Others dream of fleeing Taxachusetts for the Granite State. After our break, NHPR reporters explore the costs and benefits of living in New Hampshire. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. This is Next. I'm John Dankowski. New Hampshire is a state that sure does love to brag about itself. From its motto, live free or die, to its governors, past and present, touting the New Hampshire advantage, to its reputation is a good place to both raise a family and also to retire. Of course, New Hampshire stands out from all the other states in New England in one big way. Here's what one of the state's elected officials, Executive Counselor Joe Kenny, told me when I asked him to make a pitch for vacationers to come to New Hampshire rather than neighboring Vermont. We always say one thing, no income tax, no sales tax. Tax-free New Hampshire, come one, come all. All right, so last month, New Hampshire Public Radio launched a wide-reaching series of reports about the costs, the benefits, and the trade-offs that come with living in the Granite State. It's called The Balance. Two of the station's reporters join me now from their Concord headquarters. 
Lauren Chuljan is the station's State of Democracy reporter. She's also a native of New Hampshire. And Todd Bookman joins us again. He's a general assignment reporter with NHPR. Uh, Todd and Lauren, thanks for the time and welcome to Next. Thank you. Thank you. you. So this is a, a pretty big series and it tackles a lot of big issues. Where did the idea first come from? It was kind of a a slow motion thing, I'd say, from the start. Uh, topics would come up uh, at our morning news meeting. Uh, I should mention that our reporting team is kind of this this mix of both longtime residents and newcomers to the state. And so when you have those two groups, they sort of view life here from really different perspectives. Yeah, and I would add that New Hampshire is like many other states right now, right? They're really focused on how they can attract more people to an aging state. So we wanted to find out how are people thinking about New Hampshire and what it can provide to residents, but also what are some of the trade-offs people might be weighing when they move here from elsewhere. Yeah, I would say, though, that it really did start a lot around this unique approach that New Hampshire takes to raising money, the the lack of sales or income tax that uh, Joe Kenny mentioned, and therefore the sort of heavy reliance on a property tax. That winds up affecting a lot of, of, of one's life from home prices to new home construction to, to school budgets. And also when you talk about life in New Hampshire and why or why not it might make sense for people, there's also this kind of New Hampshire vibe, right? I mean, it's it's a lot broader than just tax rates or more logistical things. So I think that's really where the series is going to dive deepest, the both seen and unseen forces that make New Hampshire life really what it is. So Lauren, your story on Littleton, New Hampshire, kicked off the series. It's a it's a small town, and it's north of the White Mountains. On paper, it shouldn't really be thriving. We've profiled some towns up there that aren't doing so well, but but you found a, a town that seems to be. Yeah, you know, Littleton really does look like it would be just any other New England town that's really struggled. It used to be full of good manufacturing jobs. Littleton had a lot of shoe factories lining the Amanusik River. And a lot of those towns, as you mentioned, you know, those factories are gone, the jobs are gone, and they haven't really bounced back. But when I started exploring around there, I realized that Littleton and also some of the towns surrounding it that kind of, you know, are with Littleton on a number of things, they really are thriving. So, So how did this particular town catch your attention? So honestly, when I moved back to New Hampshire for this job, I figured, you know, one of the best ways to get acquainted and reacquainted, so to speak, was to go to places that I didn't really go to as a kid or places that were on my radar for one reason or another. And Littleton was like, it was my first week on the job. And I just actually just went up there and talked to whoever was walking around Main Street and just stumbled on into places. And I was really surprised at the kind of businesses that I found and how new some of them seemed. And also I was really taken aback by how much people really love to talk about their town. Mm. Like not to rag on my own town. I grew up in Hampstead, New Hampshire. But like if Todd Bookman went walking around Main Street in Hampstead, I, I really don't think you would find people who were like, welcome to Hampstead. You got to go to the English muffin, Todd. But this is like what Littleton was. And no offense to the English muffin, but it's really good. But like there were so many people who were just coming out of the woodworks being like, Welcome to Littleton. You should go here. You should go there. And so that enthusiasm and this kind of up and coming vibe was really interesting to me. I kind of want to hear Todd do that story now. But you know, this is uh, a st- sounds like a great place to hear <laughs> yeah. This is a story, though, that we've heard uh, in a lot of different places. In all of our states here in New England, we're all trying to figure out how to attract young families, young business owners. It's really the same story all over our region. Why is this really important for New Hampshire in particular? 
Yeah, so I would say that one of the biggest problems for New Hampshire right now is it has a rapidly aging population. And this is especially problematic in rural areas like Littleton because it's also often the case that the number of school-aged kids is declining. And so the problems that come with those two demographic trends are obvious, right? I mean, cities or towns need young families to grow or younger people to put more energy to a place. Plus, you know, new residents obviously mean more tax revenue. I mean, you get the idea. So As we said before, too, New Hampshire politicians are really keyed into this. It's a big focus. The governor has a millennial council right now because they know in order to really thrive, they have to find more young people that either want to return to their home state or build a new life here. So so then what, what is behind Littleton's success specifically? Yeah. So for my story, I I basically, like I said, I I went around town and talked to anyone who was around and and I I focused a lot on kind of the business and economic development world to to come up with a list of the ingredients to their success, so to speak. And so four things came to mind. Number one, it's it's relatively affordable to live and work there. You can get a space, uh, you know, if you want to start a store, you can pay a lot less rent than other well-known towns like Hanover or Portsmouth. So affordability is a big one. Another thing is in the 1970s, when those shoe factories I mentioned started to decline, the town made the decision to invest in a new industrial park. And a lot of people in town will say that that's really what built this diversified economy that they can lean on and that the money and the jobs and then the people that came for those jobs really helped build up Main Street and then, you know, the river area. The third is, like I mentioned, people are obsessed with Littleton and they're really willing to put in the time. And as cheesy as that sounds, it really is something that comes through when you talk to people as they're in all these clubs or they're in different groups or what have you. And then lastly, there's a lot of stuff to do around there. Uh, One person I talked to, Rusty Talbot, he started a climbing gym around Littleton and he moved his family from Washington, D.C. And he told me how intense some people can get about the outdoor activities around there. I know people who can go down to the seacoast and be surfing in the morning and then be skiing in the afternoon and then be fat biking by headlamp in the middle of the night, you know? And that that ability that we've got this huge range of activities in such a compact area is really unique. All right, so there's a lot to do around there, especially for outdoor enthusiasts. But you need businesses too, you know, people buying and selling stuff. What are some of the businesses you found? Yeah, so the first one that really caught my attention on my first trip up there was this place called Cash Only Vintage. And it's owned by a guy named Joel Storella. And I was immediately really interested in this because it's not what I expected to find in Littleton. You know, Littleton's known for the longest candy counter in the world, it turns out. And then kind of, you know, Pollyanna's authors from there. Joel owns a business that is literally 80s and 90s thrift store goods that he's found all around the country. And I mean, I expect to find that in my old neighborhood in Chicago, but certainly not in Littleton. And I was really surprised. And apparently I'm not the only person who feels that way. A lot of people who have come to visit him have said the same thing. If you have someone from New York that's just here for a wedding or whatever, exploring, they're totally caught off guard that this would be here. And everyone says, oh, you know, this would do so well if it was in X city, whatever city. But I think that it's doing so well because it's here. So you get your thrift stores, but there's other stuff too. You know, right right next to Joel is Schilling Brewery, which has been bringing in tourists and also people all around New Hampshire who want to go up and get a growler beer or pizza or what have you. There's a lot of inns that are being purchased around the area and revamped by young families or people who used to work in the restaurant industry. So there's a lot of stuff going on up there. The, the thing is, uh, Lauren, I think a lot of towns look at a success story like this and say, well, maybe this is a blueprint for what we can do. But you've already mentioned a lot of factors that seem 
pretty specific to Littleton. I mean, is this a blueprint that you could pick up and put somewhere else in New Hampshire or somewhere else in New England? Yeah, sort of. I mean, I think you can take, if you're a smaller town, you can kind of take inspiration from it, possibly. You know, if you see something like that industrial park, I mean, they started that in the 70s. That was a while ago. They've been able to build up from there. But maybe towns could see that and say, okay, maybe how can we find more businesses that will create a more diversified economy? The other thing I want to say is is one of the things I also learned was no matter how hard, you know, communities or chambers of commerce try to attract young people, Sometimes life doesn't just work that way for young families. I mean, a lot of people I talked to just ended up in New Hampshire because that's where their family was or because that's where life took them. So I think all the towns will have to kind of consider this this balance, so to speak, as they they look and come up with different ideas about how towns can try and grow. So, so that leads us to the next story in the series, and this is Todd Bookman's story. You wrote about a kind of experiment in the southern New Hampshire town of Londonderry. Tell us about it. Yeah, I think experiment is really the the perfect word to describe what they're attempting to do in Londonderry. So this is a town of about 25,000 residents. It's down near the Massachusetts border. It's just off uh, the interstate, which makes it a great spot to live uh, if you are a commuter. And historically, Londonderry was this great agricultural town. There are still these apple orchards uh, that trace back to the mid-18th century. They're, they're really sort of the defining symbol of Londonderry. It is a place with a lot of history, a lot of charm. Uh, it's also, you know, I should note it's fairly well off. So it sounds, it sounds pretty great. What's missing? Well, what it's missing a lot of people would say, is a true downtown. And this happened because of a mix of historical reasons. Uh, it has to do with where the train tracks were laid. Uh, it has to do with an 1827 split with the neighboring town. And so for this variety of reasons, Londonderry really never developed a traditional downtown, a walkable row of shops. There has always been commerce in Londonderry. There is still today you know, a, a drag of sort of big box and chain stores, but but nothing like a true Main Street. And so the experiment here is that private developers are stepping in and they're going to try to build one from scratch. Build like a downtown from scratch. And in this project, is it's called Woodmont Commons. And this isn't going to be built overnight, right? No, 20 years from start to finish. It is a project on a size and scale never seen before in New Hampshire. Uh, the basic sketch is that they've bought a former apple orchard and some other surrounding lands, and they are going to turn about 600-plus acres into a, a new little village. So it's going to have uh, shops, banks, a performing art center. Eventually, it could have a, a hospital, maybe even a, a school. And I think most importantly, it's going to have a lot of housing and a lot of housing options. So they're looking at 1,400 uh, units, and this is going to be a mix of apartments, of townhouses, and single-family homes. But there's this real kind of density to them. This, this isn't like a, a traditional, you know, cul-de-sac with each house getting its own acre or two. Th th these homes are going to be tight. Have a lot of people been showing interest in in living here in this in this entire development? Well, you know, the project is already six or seven years in the making. That's how long the planning and approval stage ha has taken in Londonderry. And so I think that sort of long buildup has actually helped spur uh, a lot of interest. Ari Pollock is a lawyer. He's helping the private developers get this project up and running. And he actually he gave me a tour of the site. And he had this to say about the, the demand. We get calls uh, regularly for inquiries for the apartments. When are they going to be ready? When can I sign up? When can I move in? You know, Tell me how it's going to look. What's it going to feel like? What's it going to smell like? 
Hmm. <laughs> What's it going to smell like? Um, have we seen this kind of plan development in other New England states, something, something on this scale? There's nothing that I'm aware of on this size and scale uh, with this end goal in New England. Um, We should say that this model of mixed-use building, bringing both housing and office space and commercial space to one place, it is being used uh, in other large-scale projects taking place in the southern United States and also in the Midwest. But uh, from my sense, it is pretty new to New England, and that's in part simply because we don't have, you know, the land for it. Um, and there hasn't always been this pressing a need for for housing stock of this type. That's sort of where this story sort of overlaps with the broader themes of the series, uh, which is that housing is, especially in the populated southern tier of New Hampshire, there's this real lack right now. And so Woodmont Commons, what it seeks to do is bring this very specific new type of housing that will attract uh, both young families, young professionals that, you know, Lauren was talking about uh, trying to draw into Littleton, folks that n- may not want the big house on the big lot because in New Hampshire that comes with big property taxes. And then on the flip side, uh, empty nesters, baby boomers who are looking to downsize, they don't they don't want the two acre lot either. And so Woodmont is sort of the private market's response to all these different forces uh, that are shaking out in New Hampshire. Todd, you said, though, that one of the defining characteristics of of this place is these apple orchards uh, that surround it, and they're going to be building this on apple orchards. How do people feel about that? This, I think, this really divides the community in in a sense. Uh, there's a lot of love for these apple trees, most of which at this property are, you know, have already been been taken down in the buildings and site work are starting. Uh, Woodmont has agreed to leave an exterior row of apple trees. So there's going to be this sort of row that uh, edges the property. It's sort of a nod to the history, but also this uh, acknowledgement that progress needs to take place. Um, you know, the, the landowner, Woodmont, uh, was willing to sell. I think it's a, a, a it's hard to make money uh, selling apples in New Hampshire right now. But I think there's a lot of people in Londonderry that chose to live there because of the scenic view, the, you know, these countryside perfect vistas. So I think there is this acknowledgement that Londonderry is losing something by losing this apple orchard. But what it's potentially gaining is this this new walkable downtown area, the, the type of life that a, a lot of people who live in more urban areas around our region are are pretty used to, right? Yeah, it's a very sort of urban model, at least a very sort of high density approach, if I can slide into some planning lingo. <laughs> but it's a lifestyle that lots of people want right now. Uh, people want to be able to wake up on Saturday morning and, and walk to the local coffee shop and then walk to the park and, and you know, maybe hit up the brew pub in the afternoon. Uh, it's a model that already exists in other New England communities. I'm thinking of a place like Portsmouth, New Hampshire and Peterborough, New Hampshire. And uh, private developers are trying to bring it to Londonderry too. So, so, Lauren, where else is this series heading? It looks as though you're you're profiling some very different sorts of communities and and the ways in which people are, are adapting. What other stories are you going to be telling? Yeah, so a big piece of our reporting here is we really want to be listener-driven. So we've been reaching out on air and also on social media to ask listeners, you know, when you think about the balance of living in New Hampshire or the cost of living of here and what are the trade-offs, you know, what are your big questions? And we've gotten a ton. One person wrote us, you know, by far the biggest cost for my family is child care. Someone said they spend $27,560 a year on child care for two kids. So they want to know, you know, how other people feel about that. Is that average? what have you. 
But then we also hear from people who say, you know, I've heard the issue of property tax versus income tax. So can you analyze the pros and cons and see where things come out? Yeah, we have gotten some great questions, including why do car washes uh, cost so much more in New Hampshire? I'll be honest. I don't know if that's actually true. Neither do I. We're going to put our best people on it. <laughs> we're on it. We're on it. There's a good variety. We had a good story, too, by our colleague Jason Moon about the uh, the fishing economy in New Hampshire and, and how much more expensive it is now to try and be a career fisherman than it used to be. And Jason talked to some really interesting fishermen out about, you know, the sacrifices they have to make and how hard it is. And, and that was really good. And Todd's working on a good story, too. Which one, Lauren? <laughs> About about when you have to sell the state when you're a governor and you you know why don't you tell people? Sure, I don't think anybody could sell the state as good as Lauren, but uh, certainly there is this tradition in New Hampshire of the governor taking a very out front role, uh, sort of a a cheerleader in in, in chief, uh, somebody who gets out there and brands the state, the New Hampshire advantage. Right now, Governor Sununu loves to talk about 603 Pride. So working on a story right about how um, how these talking points can sort of get into the, the zeitgeist of the state and what they say about. Uh, what it's like to live in the here and now in New Hampshire. Lauren Children made the choice to move back to New Hampshire from Chicago. She's the State of Democracy reporter at NHPR. Lauren, thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks also to Todd Bookman, our general assignment reporter at NHPR, who's told us so many great stories, including stories from the series The Balance. Thank you so much, Todd. Thank you. Coming up, composing a soundtrack for the New England landscape. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. Think of a time you were traveling across New England, maybe in your car or on your bike, hiking or cross-country skiing. If you were in a movie, what music would be playing in the background as the camera panned over the mountains and rivers and the winding roads? Well, if you decide to make that movie someday, you're in luck. Our next guest, Ben Cosgrove, is a New England-based instrumentalist who composes and plays works inspired by the New England landscape. He's currently the composer-in-residence for the New England Trail. He joined us in studio, and he brought along his keyboard. Ben, welcome to Next. Thanks very much for having me. We're going to talk about your, your new project in just a minute. But first of all, I want to get a sense of place with you. When we talked to you about coming to do this, I said, well, where in New England exactly are you based? And you told me kind of everywhere. To tell me more about that. You're like a New England guy. Yeah. I um, I, I say that I like, kind of found a way to monetize restlessness. <laughs> I, um, I grew up in the Mass New Hampshire border. And then uh, now I'm a touring musician. Um, and I, I, I'm really kind of obsessed with this region and have kind of used my role as a musician to kind of as an excuse to be everywhere all the time whenever I can. What's the obsession with the region? Well, I mean, well, part of it is is just that I I'm really interested in place and landscape to begin with, and all my music is about that. And I guess as an outgrowth of that, I've become particularly interested in figuring out what it is about this region that I grew up in that I've spent so much time with that I, you know, I you you always kind of like want to work out the mysteries of what is most familiar to you. Mm. So, you talk about place and landscape being the basis of your music. Uh, so many composers, uh, even composers who write instrumental music, 
will will center the emotional uh, piece of what they're doing around a person or or a relationship or a moment in time. Tell me about what it means to write about a place. I have this sort of liberal artsy belief conviction that you know, like metaphor will be the thing that saves the world. So I've written <laughs> – like my last record was a kind of a, a breakup album that was about estuaries. Um, and I, I don't know. I think music is actually a really good – a lot of landscape art is visual and there is a lot of you know, poetry and there's a lot of um, prose about landscape and place. But it, it, our experience of landscape unfolds over time. Music is the same way. I'm wondering if you can you can play some music that that you've written that is inspired by a New England place. I, I know we gave you a, a lot of possibilities of things <laughs> that you could play. Pick one for us. What do you what would you like to play? I can do um, I can do a very distinctive New England place. This is, I, I was the artist in residence at White Mountain National Forest a couple of years ago, um, and the the way I, what I ended up doing for them is to kind of celebrate just exactly this the fact that that. It, that forest is so many things. It's where, like where people live. It's a commercially active. It's, it's, you know, there are parts that are very hard to get to. Almost no one's there. Um, I wrote just a big pile of smaller songs that all kind of connect to each other in these unexpected ways. Um, and this one's called Wind Falling from a Higher Place. And you're supposed to imagine that, you know, uh, you're on the, you know, a rocky ridgeline and the weather is whipping about you and you can't really see where you're going and you're being buffeted by wind and rain and whatever. Um, and those conditions clear up just often enough that you can kind of recalibrate and, and set yourself back on the path you were on and then uh, start back up before everything kind of fires back up again.
break this down for us in terms of how you you're using the the notes, the lots of notes to to convey something. Well, I think about um, all of these are necessarily pretty abstract. So I, I I guess the way I describe the my process is that I kind of simultaneously walk through the world collecting you know straight up musical ideas that are not connected to any non musical ideas at all. Um, and but also, as I was saying, like kind of paying close attention to the landscapes I'm in and how the and these built or natural environments are kind of affecting me in a, in my, a lizard brain kind of way. <laughs> um, and then whenever something in that latter category really strikes me, like this this thing on the ridge line or a um, you know the the arrangement of a particular um, set of cliffs or an estuary or a river or whatever, um, then I try to figure out what in that garbage bag of musical ideas I can kind of Lego together to create a, you know, a, a musical experience that'll approximate the, that phenomenon that I had in the, or that I experienced in the landscape. You, you mentioned built landscapes and also natural landscapes. And of course, when people think landscapes, they, they tend to, at least my mind, moves toward the natural and the the striking vistas of the White Mountains or the rocky coastline of Maine. What about the built environment? And how exactly do you uh, make that into something that people can experience as, as a landscape as well? Um, well, I mean, it is. It's, it's, yeah. uh, it's especially interesting around here because, as we were saying earlier, there's, I mean, there's just so many people around. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had to be very kind of, I mean, we as New Englanders and Northeasterners and, uh, have had to be very kind of um, mindful of how we, what we do with our different, the different parts of this landscape we inhabit. So it's resulted in this thing where that we've, we've ended up with a lot of places that are kind of dedicatedly, you know, natural. Like you, if you, if you want to see, you know, nature, you go here. And I think the most interesting places are those where those lines aren't as hard. You can kind of wander through. Um, I mean, the, the New England Trail, which I'm working on with right now, you, it starts off, you know, in this beautiful start, mall, start march, and then you go uh, over, you go through a soccer field, and then you're on a street for a little bit, and then you're in the woods for a while. Um, and I, I just think that that is such an emblematic New experience of like walking around the the landscape of this part of the world. I, maybe we can go to go to that next, and I, I'd like to hear more about this. the The New England Trail is is something that I don't know very much about. What what else can you tell us about the New England Trail in in your role in helping to bring it to people's attention? Yeah, the, uh, the New England Trail is one of a, uh, about a dozen national scenic trails um, that are they're managed by the National Park Service. It's uh, it includes the Appalachian Trail and the Pacific Crest Trail and a host of others. It's one of the newest, so it, it was just uh, made a trail in 2009. Um, and it runs along the old uh, metacomet Monadnock Trail in Massachusetts and the Metacomet and Matavesic Trails in Connecticut. Uh, and I'm the artist in residence this year for the trail, um, which they have because nobody knows this thing is there. <laughs> um, <laughs> So my, what I'm supposed to be doing is is walking as much of this trail as I can, and then writing um, some music or creating some kind of musical product that'll that'll reflect it in some way. Is there something you're working on right now that you can play for us? Maybe some a work in process or something? Yeah, for sure. Uh, this is a song called Cairn. It's and it's kind of it's one of the opening songs for the for the set, and it's it's a good example of a thing I'm trying to do with all of the songs, which is to use um, 
I'm really interested in the way that we kind of carry, or as you move along these things, you notice, uh, you, you, you don't notice the things that stay the same, and, but those, those kind of commonalities make the changes in the landscape more obvious. Mm. So uh, the songs that I'm writing, try to, I've tried to use a lot of pedal tones and drones and um, notes that kind of hang throughout the piece and while kind of harmonies and rock formations change underneath them. <laughs> That's beautiful. Thank you. That's really beautiful. It bodes well. No, no, yeah. no one's heard that. No, 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 no. <laughs> when do you know it's done? Um, I oh man, that's a great question. There is a lot. Of, I used to say until it was recorded and released, but then there's there. <laughs> I mean, there are songs that I recorded years ago that I've continued to edit. So, but because you've been all over this region and you've you've lived here and you've worked here and you've experienced the the urban areas and also a lot of a lot of the nature. Do you have the sense that New England holds together as like a contiguous place or is it a bunch of different places that all just sort of call themselves something? Um, I think it's both. I mean, it's definitely a lot of different places, but it's a lot of different places that that rhyme. You know, it's these these small things that you wouldn't notice, just like the way that all the, the, the towns and villages are kind of nucleated, like, you know, they radiate out from these these points where all the roads converge. Um long kind of winding roads connecting town centers. Um, yes, I, I think that New England is is a, a um, cohesive entity and also one that, I mean, the, the best thing about it is that when you move from, you know, one 50-mile area to another, you can feel like you're in a totally different 
world. But I'm glad that you mentioned the, the roadways that connect us. One of the, the organizing principles when we started this program was that many of these roads that connect these small little towns were, were carved for horses a very long time ago, <laughs> right? And, and there's a sense that we're still adapting our modern way of life to patterns that were laid down centuries ago. And so therefore, a lot of what we have here doesn't make the most sense, mm-hmm. right? And you probably, you probably see this all the time, things that you wouldn't design this way if you, if you were designing it now, right? Right, where the technology is different now. Yeah, I mean, but I think that that's, and that, I mean, although we will both emerge into rush hour in Hartford, Connecticut, which is a result. <laughs> um, the, I think the fact that so much of this area, I mean, more so than most of the country is person-sized is, is really interesting and important. I, I think just to, even just that, you know, the kind of communities are, are roughly 10 miles apart always. You know, this creates cro- clogged roadways and, and like weird traffic patterns and to like, you know, you'll be on Route 28 going south and going straight north if you're <laughs> part of the Cape River. But uh, that's a, a decent price to pay, I think, for like, ha- like having a region where you can kind of independently as a, you know, human-sized person move through it and, and make your way and, and notice things. Ben Cosgrove is the first ever composer in residence for the New England Trail. He joined us in our studio today. Ben, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. It was fun to talk to you. Ben Cosgrove plays his music all around New England. If you want to find out about upcoming performance dates, check him out at bencosgrove.com. So what tracks are on your New England playlist? You can let us know at Next New England. Next is produced at WNPR by Andrew Moraskin. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. Production help this week from Tucker Ives. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. You can hear more at toddmerrill.com. And thanks to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The music you're hearing this week under these credits is Champlain by Ben Cosgrove. If you like this week's show, you can follow our Facebook page at Next New England. We've got stories from around the region, videos, and a lot more. It's facebook.com slash nextnewengland. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York and the Melville Charitable Trust. And it's powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and Connecticut Public Radio.